Turn to Titus chapter 1. This little epistle that we have been trekking our way through verse by verse. Tonight we come to verse 9. Where the apostle continues to Timothy, holding fast the faithful word as he, that is, the elder or the bishop who would be appointed, that he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. It was Mark Twain who said, A lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is still lacing up her boots. How true, but how sad that is. Now, i got to say right off the bat that as I looked at what was before me in tonight's study, I did not rejoice as my first response. In fact, I went, oh, man. Because I don't necessarily love to speak on this topic of false doctrine. But as I was looking at it, first of all, I don't choose my lessons topically. I do it expositorily. What is there is there. Secondly, I realized that so much of the New Testament is this very topic. In almost every single letter or book of the New Testament, there is the mention against false prophets, false teachers that already proliferated the church in the first century. It's nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. Though truth had made an impact, I wouldn't say that by this time truth was lacing up her boots. But certainly lies made their way halfway around the inhabited world at that time. People love odd things. Have you noticed that? The bizarre, the goofy, uh, seem to just get all the press. Ever gone into a grocery store and looked at the headlines on the tabloids? There's a reason those tabloids are there. You know what it is? People buy them. They like them. They're very popular. Here's a small list of some of the bizarre headlines found in supermarket tabloids recently. Here's one. Dinosaurs honked like Buicks. What is that? What does that mean? Why not like Fords? I don't know. Cow mattresses help cows produce more milk. 
Here's one. Mom to be on diet of only chicken lays huge egg. (laughs) Another headline. World War II bomber found on the moon. Another one. Woman gives birth to two-year-old baby. Child walks and talks in three days. How do these tabloids still exist? I don't know. Here's one final one. Adam and Eve's bones found in Asia. Eve was a space alien. <laughs> now, i got to admit, when I go through the store, I do look at these headlines because you wonder, what new goofy thing can they top? from the previous issue. What else could they write about? But they seem to do it. They have people who are paid to come up with these bizarre stories. And people buy them. It's Hank Hanegraaff from the Bible Answer Man who always asks the question. Often toward the end of his show, he will say, are you willing to do for the truth what the cultists are willing to do for a lie? Are you willing to do for the truth what cultists are willing to do for a lie? That's a very convicting question, is it not? Because they're willing to do almost anything. In post-war Japan in 1949, there were 12 Jehovah Witnesses that went to that country. Now today they boast in having 175,000 members, all of them, as you know, evangelists, who go door to door and in 1992 cumulatively spent 85 million man hours propagating their gospel from door to door throughout that country. Out of those 12 followers, on any given Sunday in Japan, in the kingdom halls of Japan, are over 400,000 Jehovah Witnesses in contrast to all of the Protestant churches put together, about 250,000 members. Are you willing to do for the truth what the cultists are willing to do for a lie? Truth, that is eternal truth, the fundamentals of what the gospel is all about. Jesus died, buried, rose from the dead, God incarnate coming again, are never negotiable. There are other things that are negotiable. But those things are never, ever negotiable. Because counterfeits are dangerous. Some would say, what does it matter? It's all the same. Counterfeits are dangerous. They're dangerous in medicine. Several years ago, there was a newspaper article that showed how that in a maternity ward of a hospital, several babies had died, and they tried to figure out why. When they figured out why, they saw that the salt, excuse me, the sugar water solution that was fed IV to the babies had accidentally been substituted for saline solution. And they put too much salt into the bodies of these infants, though the solution looked just like the other. It was a counterfeit. It was a substitute And it caused death. So you might look at them on the outside. What does it matter? In the end, it matters. 
And to the world who sees one religion as another religion, and they would say, what does it matter? In the end, it will matter. That's why Paul the Apostle, who loved the truth, had to mention the things that he mentioned in this verse. I've entitled this message tonight, Time to Take a Stand. And though it is a letter to a young man over 19 centuries ago in Crete on an island, called to raise up leadership, and though its primary application would be to those spiritual leaders in the early church, it applies to us today. Especially if you are a leader, but it applies to all of us today, and we'll see why as we go through it in our remaining time. But if you are a leader especially, take heed to these things. They are for you. Whether you're a home leader, a pastor of a church, you lead some kind of a spiritual group, a kinship, a woman's group, You own a media market like radio or television or anything that is managerially giving you oversight of ministry. These things you must take heed to. Now, what the apostle has been doing, as you remember, is giving qualifications for a leader in verses 6, 7, and 8. And all of the characteristics of that leader, all that he is to be, is for the singular, distinct purpose of being able to teach the truth And hold forth the word of God. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. We've underscored this truth before that the primary calling of the pastor, though there are many hats that he may wear, primarily he ought to be a student and therefore a teacher of the Bible. As we remember in Acts chapter 6, when there was a problem in the early church and they came to the apostles and they said, I know there's a lot of people in the early church, but we want you to handle this. The apostles said, we will not leave the word of God to serve tables. You find seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, we will appoint over this matter, but we will give ourselves, devote ourselves, dedicate ourselves to prayer, and to the ministry of the Word. That's my primary focus. It always has been. It always will be here as long as I occupy this pulpit as pastor. There's a lot of other things I do and that I like to do. I have my fair share of administration, and I love to administrate. I have a portion of counseling with certain ministry leaders. I'll do weddings and funerals like every other pastor. But my primary focus is the ministry of the Word. And besides that, I've got such great qualified leaders around me in this fellowship, pastors and administrators who are so awesome and do so many of these things much better than I do. Actually, I sit back and when I hear them counsel or watch them in their organizational skills, I marvel. And I'm so grateful that God has placed them there. But the pastor of the church must be a student of the Word himself place himself under the scrutiny of the Word to be able to teach it. William Taylor once wrote, and he wrote this many years ago. I know this because he lived in the 1600s, so he had to write it a long time ago. He said, Let it never be forgotten then that he who would rise to eminence and usefulness in the pulpit and become wise in winning souls must say of the work of the ministry, This one thing I do. He must focus his whole heart and life upon the pulpit. He must give his days and his nights to the production of those messages, 
by which he seeks to convince and move the hearts and elevate the lives of his hearers. Now, I want to take these verses and broaden them out a little bit. I won't take anything out of context, I hope, I trust. But I want to look at this not only for the leader, as mentioned in verses 6, 7, and 8, but as a dictum for the whole church. There's two things, basically, that are said in the verses that we're reading. Number one, we must take a stand for the truth. We must take a stand for the truth. Secondly, we must take a stand against the enemies of the truth. I don't mean we should ad hominem personally attack people, but we must stand up for the truth and stand against the enemies of the truth. Both of these are demonstrated and shared in these verses. Both of them are very difficult, are they not? Wouldn't it just be great if we just could just say, put all our differences aside, nothing really matters, doctrine never really matters, truth doesn't really matter, and yet have you ever heard people say those things or echo those sentiments? I have. And on one hand, I'd like to say, yes, that's great, I yeah, right on. But I'll tell you what, if you got ever in a room with Paul the Apostle and said that, you wouldn't get along with him very well. Because so much of his teaching, as well as the teaching of Christ, was embracing all people and loving all people, but bringing them down to that narrow central truth of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, coming again. The basic truth that was non-negotiable. Now in verse 9... We begin by looking at the need to take a stand for the truth. And the way Paul puts it is this, holding fast. And I want you to get the word picture in your mind. Uh, Picture yourself sliding down a cliff and a rope is handed out to you. And when that rope comes, you grab fast and hold tight for life. That's what the word implies. Holding fast, not loosely. Your eternal life depends on it. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Now, the idea is to grab a hold of something, to work that something in your life, and then to put the rope out to somebody else. Because not only is he to hold fast to something, but it says, notice, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So he's going to grab a hold of it, have a death grip, so to speak, on the truth, so that he can share it with other people and proclaim it to other people. Now, why is the proclamation of the Word of God so important? It's mentioned many times by Paul to Timothy, to Titus, to others. He used it of himself. Jesus told his disciples to go out and do it. Why is the proclamation of the truth so important? Well, number one, because it's trustworthy. Truth is trustworthy. Notice the word in our verse, the faithful word or as some translations say, the trustworthy word. Now, real briefly, what makes it trustworthy? I mean, anybody can say, you ought to take my word for it. You've all had people say, trust me. But if you know them, some of them can be trusted, and others, when they say it, you go, oh, no. That means forget trust in this person. He's not trustworthy. But the Bible is trustworthy for a few reasons. Number one, accurate transmission. We have touched on these in other studies, but just to refresh your memory, accurate transmission. That is, as the scripture has been handed down through centuries, it's been handed down accurately. 
Have you ever heard somebody say, how can you trust this book? A bunch of people wrote things down and probably made mistakes, no doubt, after so much copying. I've heard people say that. And it's a ridiculous argument simply because we have 5,500 copies of the New Testament. More fragments and more copies than virtually any other ancient document. And they agree. By and large, especially in all the major parts, they all agree. 5,500. Moreover, they date back to within one generation of the original document being written. Now, compare that with, say, a secular work like The Gaelic Wars by Caesar. We have about, oh, as many as ten copies in existence. The earliest one, about 900 to 1,000 years after it was originally written. Yet if somebody dare stands up in a college or university environment and says, I dispute Caesar's Gaelic Wars as being authentic, they'd say, what are you, an idiot? And yet with all of the manuscript evidence and the evidence for accurate transmission, the Bible has been attacked. Accurate transmission. It is faithful. It's reliable. Secondly, reliable history. I love going to Israel because I love looking at the archaeological digs. And every time a dig goes on and the archaeologist spade uncovers something new, it always seems to agree with the Bible. In fact, the greatest archaeologist who has ever lived in Israel, Nelson Gluick, said, I have never once found a single archaeological dig that has ever controverted a single text of Scripture. Reliable history. Accurate transmission. I remember reading about how some of the scientific community members read things in the Scripture and said, oh, well, there's no proof of that. This idea of the Pool of Bethesda where there was this supposed spring underneath Jerusalem that caused the waters to be stirred and people to get healed that porch or five porches over the pool, oh, that we've never found that. It's ridiculous. There's no mention of it in ancient history. And so they attacked the Bible until several years ago, and I visited this pool about 15 or 16 separate times, and it has, interestingly enough, five porches, and it's right where the Bible says that it is. So it just takes these archaeologists a little bit of time to catch up with the Bible, that's all. And then people said, oh, Pontius Pilate. You read about him in the New Testament. You never read about him anywhere else. Surely he's a Fig Newton of somebody's imagination. He didn't really exist until they happened to be digging in Caesarea by the sea and found the emperor Tiberius, his name inscribed on a stone, and underneath the procurator Pontius Pilate of Judea. Right where the Bible says they'd find it. Accurate transmission, reliable history, fulfilled prophecy. We can't get into that tonight. We've done it so many other times. But also a unified message. Sixty-six separate books between the covers of this book. Sixty-six separate books written over 1,600 years, three major languages, three separate continents. Men were separated by their ethnic groups. They're separated by their occupations. They all spoke on controversial subjects, and they all agree. You couldn't say that about any other book. That's why Paul calls it the faithful word. So we grab a hold of it. We proclaim it because it's trustworthy. There's another reason. Secondly, 
When the Bible is proclaimed, it lets God speak rather than men. Now, I could get up here and say, you know, I think and I feel and my opinion, well, what's your opinion? How do you feel tonight? That wouldn't get us very far. You can get that in a soap opera. You can get that on Oprah or late-night garbage television. But when you proclaim the Scripture, you let God speak. You are filled with God's thoughts, God's logic, God's ideas, God's opinions. You see, God reveals Himself generally and specifically. Now, I think most Americans, most people in the world would agree with the first part, that God reveals Himself generally through creation. You look around and you go, I see design all around me. Therefore, I believe in a designer. But the second part people have trouble with. God speaks specifically through the Word of God, the Scriptures. It is His words. And when you open it and proclaim it, you're letting God speak His Word. That's why I think a pastor, a preacher, or a Bible teacher should teach in an expository manner. Proclaim what the Bible says. Uncover the nuggets and apply the truth to people's lives. I think that's what it's all about. Again, Mark Twain once said that he heard a preacher who charged nothing for his sermons and they were worth it. Because it was just a bunch of his opinions, a bunch of his ideas founded on nothing but just what he felt like saying. And so it's the faithful word. Now, for the reasons that we just listed... For those reasons, it was very needful to have people who could do that in Crete. That's what Paul said. That's what this whole several verses up to this point is all about. Titus, I left you in Crete, that you could set in order the things that are lacking and raise up those elders in every city, that they can hold fast and then disseminate the truth. And then he explains why in verses 10 and 11, because of the false prophets. Before we get to that point, notice something else in verse 9. The ministry of the word is two-pronged. On one hand, it's to encourage. We all like that part. But the second part is to refute. You see, there's an element of it that's very encouraging. There's another part that's polemic, that stands up for the truth and even confronts those who oppose it. So he says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, parakaleo, to encourage, one who calls alongside like a paramedic, the same uh, prefix is in that word, called alongside to help a medic. Parakaleo, called alongside to encourage a believer. That's what it means. And secondly, to convict or to refute. It's a very strong word. It means by reason, to have a person who is erred in his ways to change his mind, to change his thinking, and to get right with God. That's basically what it means, to convict those who contradict. So, a person who ministers in the Word is to feed as well as protect. It's a dual ministry. Remember, in Acts chapter 20, Paul the Apostle who wrote this said that about himself. He was there, and there was a whole bunch of people around him. He was about to leave and go to Jerusalem. Nobody wanted him to go. It was a touching scene. Everybody was weeping because they loved each other so dearly. And Paul reminded them of sort of a twofold ministry. He said, now, I've been with you guys three years. And while I was here, I taught you the whole counsel of God. I was a faithful shepherd. 
I took you through the truth. And for three years, I gave you the whole counsel of God. But then he also said, neither did I cease to warn you day and night with tears. And he mentions the false prophets that were about to come to the Ephesian church. And he said, I want you to know, I warned you for three years about these jokers. And after my departure, these savage wolves will come into the flock, not sparing them. Twofold ministry. One to feed, to encourage the other to be the shepherd that protects. And I think a good shepherd isn't one who just pats every person who blows through town or has a radio or TV program on the back, but he is careful in the discerning and the disseminating of truth. I think David alluded to that. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. What a great boast. Well, who's your pastor? God. That's what David said. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He said, he leads me beside still waters and into green pastures. It speaks of tenderness, intimacy, care, feeding, the pastoral duties of a shepherd. But then he said also, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. I'll tell you what he meant by that. Those are two terms of two tools that a shepherd would use. The staff is the leading implement. It's long and it's curved And a shepherd would use it to guide the sheep to good pastures. The rod was about that long, about two feet, two and a half feet, had nails sticking out of it, and it was a club to beat wolves lest they would come and attack the sheep. When wolves would come in, when animals of prey, that shepherd would get out that club. And don't you know that when the sheep saw his shepherd pulling out that club, he was comforted. Instead of the shepherd saying, now, little sheep, we ought not to judge those wolves. You have no right. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now go out there and play with those wolves and get along with them. After all, we're all animals together in this thing. He took out his rod to fend for those innocent sheep. That's the mark of a good shepherd. And Paul did it. Jesus did it. And now Paul instructs young Titus to do it. Now, he uses the word sound doctrine. Why is it that so many people in God's church hate the word doctrine, especially when it's used so often in the Bible? Either they don't like to read the Bible, or it's just an erroneous concept that has crept in. Arguments such as, doctrine doesn't matter. First of all, the word doctrine means solid, good teaching. It's the truth, the apostles' doctrine, who Jesus was, what he did, how you get saved. That was very important. In so many places, Paul holds that up as preeminent. And that's what's incumbent upon us to teach. Now here he calls it sound doctrine. The word sound is the word hugiaino. It's a, it's a strange word, isn't it? Hugiaino. Sounds like a disease. What do you got? Well, I've got a case of hugiaino. But actually, the meaning of hugiaino is the opposite. It means hygiene. That's where we get our word hygienic. It means safe and healthy, full of health. Teaching that is healthy and safe. That's what it means. That's what truth is all about. Notice it's used to encourage, 
And I think that the truth ought to encourage, and it always does encourage us, doesn't it? The grace of God, the love of God, even the rebuke of God is encouraging to us as we know God loves us, He cares for us, He won't let us go, He won't let us stay as we are. That's a comfort to us. And I've always believed that believers need encouragement a lot. They get beat up enough by the world. They don't need to be clobbered by shepherds or teachers. They need to be encouraged. Uh, Someone pointed out that for every negative comment that is spoken, we need about five or six just to lose the memory of the first. Five or six positive, encouraging comments. That doesn't mean that you flatter or butter somebody up unnecessarily. But oh, how we need encouragement. The truth does that. The Bible does that. But secondly, it's to convict, as we said, or reproof. So that a person who's going astray would say, I see, I'll turn. This Easter was a fabulous time. I always love Easter um, because of the subject we deal with, which is a powerful subject. Jesus risen from the dead that separates every belief and every religion from Jesus Christ. But also, the people that come to hear. And at our Easter sunrise service, where we had about 8,000 people, it was early in the morning. You never know who's going to be there and what state they'll be in once they get there. (laughs) But I was told this week, and by the way, our subject Sunday, as you remember, was Thomas the Doubter. And somebody told me this week that in the crowd, there was a young college student named Thomas who was a doubter, who was that empirical kind of a thinker, who had his doubts. I think a lot of us could fit into that category. But at the altar call, Thomas got up out of the stands and walked forward on that field to give his heart to Jesus Christ like the Thomas in the New Testament. Because the truth brought conviction. It refuted the stance that that young man had. And he said, now I'm willing to do something about it. And that's what it's all about. So we have to take a stand for the truth. Secondly, we have to take a stand against the enemies of the truth. Uh, It's obvious in reading this entire letter that uh, weird, false teaching had already come to this island of Crete. And uh, I'm going to take you through a few verses to find out what's going on here because it's not too hard to reconstruct what they were into. Um, their description is found in verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers. Insubordinate means unruly. They refuse to be subject to anything or anyone. It's the totally independent, I am on my own, do not bug me, you have no right to impose your belief system on mine. I will step out of rank, I will be unruly, after all it's my right. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers. The idea here is they're just wind. It's just all talk and nothing else. And deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, if you look over to chapter 3, there's a few elements about these characters, what they were into, And we can reconstruct what kind of teaching. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, 
strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. If you look back over at chapter 1, verse 10, we just read insubordinate idol talkers, especially those of the circumcision. So these are people who have a pseudo-intellectual, philosophical, questioning kind of uh, air about them. They're somehow related to Judaism, though they're not the Jews of the Old Testament. They're not the people of God that we know about from reading the Bible. But they're somehow tied to the Jews and uh, Jewish legalism. And if you look over at uh, verse 14 of chapter 1, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Uh, Look down at verse 16. Uh, Not only did they have all sorts of philosophical weirdness, but they were immoral. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. And then finally, look over... uh, Back at verse 11, their motivation was for dishonest gain, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Now apparently, if you're to take it all together, it was a group of people who had some tie to Judaism. It was sort of a hybrid of Judaism. They had legalistic uh, ideas, uh, debates about the law of Moses, but it led to an immoral lifestyle They were in the church. They claimed to be God's people. No doubt they claimed to be Christians. But they basically said, Jesus Christ's work on the cross is not enough. It's not sufficient. You need more than that. Not just a simple faith is enough. And number two, the grace of God is not enough. You've got to prove that you belong to God. Now, most scholars believe that this is Gnosticism. You've heard that term before, and probably most of our New Testament books, we've talked about Gnosticism. Let me briefly give you a thumbnail sketch of what it was, because at least it turned into this. The Gnostics were like the major cult of the New Testament. In almost every church where the truth penetrated, these Gnostics showed up. They believed in a couple things that made them Gnostics. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. They felt they knew better. They knew more than you know. They believed in dualism. They believed that there's the material world and the spiritual world. The material world is all nonsense. It's all evil. The spiritual world is all good. They said because God is good and not evil, God could not have created the material universe, but only the spiritual universe, whatever that meant. And so to account for the material universe, they said that emanations, other beings, went out from God, thousands of them, until finally a being, an emanation, went so far from God that he was so far removed from God that he didn't even know God, and he created the earth and the material world. They said, therefore, Jesus Christ was not really flesh. They denied his humanity. He was a phantom, they said. And they had all these goofy stories how that when Jesus walked on the sand, he never left footprints, so you could never tell where he went. They had another belief. They believed that you could contact God not through Jesus Christ, but through Jesus Christ plus something else. You needed Jesus. He was a foundation, but he was a link to God. And you had to go through several emanations to get to God. You had to go through chains of command to get to God. You couldn't just go on your own. 
And the only way that you could know God was through this hidden secret gnosis, special knowledge. Now, nobody really knows what that is. It's sort of like the Druze religion in parts of the Middle East. They have this mystical kind of religious knowledge, and to this day, nobody knows what that is. And they're sworn to secrecy. And through some initiatory rite of the Gnostics, you could get to know God. But basically the idea is they would come in the church and you'd say, well, you know, I I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I've repented of my sins. They'd say, it's not enough. You need something more. Well, what do I need? Well, you need a special knowledge. You're all right, but you're not as spiritual as I am. Now, I think to apply that, that there is a form of neo-Gnosticism today. Anytime somebody says Jesus Christ is okay, but it's not quite enough. You need Jesus plus something else to get along in this world. You have a form of neo-Gnosticism. And I don't want to pick fights unnecessarily, but I can think of a few of them. Psychotherapy is one of them. I sat across at lunch from a quote-unquote minister of the gospel who was a psychotherapist who sat and looked at me in my baby blues and said, the Bible's fine, Skip, but it's just not enough. It's not all truth. It's not enough to cure the ails of mankind. It's a good start, but you need more. You need what I have to offer the science of psychotherapy. I said, but it's not a science because you'll disagree with this guy, you'll disagree with that guy, and you guys got all these theories and practices that don't agree. It's not a regulable science. A clinic in California who purports to be, purports to be a Christian psychotherapeutic clinic, the director uh, said that this clinic was developed to treat Christians, to treat Christians. He explained why his program was specifically for Christians. He said, because there are some groups of Christians who believe the Bible is all you need. Poor dupes. That's what they think we are. We're just a bunch of dupes. Oh, man, we just trust God. Not enough. Jesus, not enough. There's another neo-Gnostic belief. I think it's just sort of a prevalent philosophy. I call it accommodation. What I mean by that is the thinking of the Christian has become so convoluted that now we're saying things, or at least thinking things like this. Well, listen, if the world won't come to the church, then let's make the church like the world so that they will. Let's not just preach the Bible and teach the Bible and sing worship songs. That's going to turn unbelievers off. Let's make it more user-friendly. Let's not mention Jesus too much. Let's have all sorts of entertainment just to bring them in. Because they say the gospel is just not enough. We need entertainment. Then I would say there's another form that's been around for a long time. I will call it, though I'm painting with a broom, emotionalism. Not emotion. Not emotion. Emotionalism. There's a difference. You know the difference? There's nothing wrong with your emotions. God gave them to you. You can't always trust them, but they're good. Just don't let them lead you. Emotionalism is pure affectation. It's pure feeling. It's, well, I feel this way. And it's more important about how I feel than what the truth is. It's more important of what the Bible means to me rather than what the Bible means. 
You see, I feel and I think it means it's all feeling-oriented. And how a person feels is become more predominant than what the truth is. Now, in situations like this, you have people who have sort of the philosophy, well, I know you're a Christian, that's okay. And you have the Bible and you have prayer and you have Jesus, but you need more. You need this special experience that only I've had or that some of us had in our group. But listen, we're praying for you that you really have that experience that we've had. Because when you have it, you'll be more enlightened than you really are. And It's a spiritual elitism. They're saying Jesus is not enough and it's an affront to the cross of Jesus Christ. Hey, I'll be the first to admit, I want to experience much more than I have experienced I want to experience all that God has for me. I don't want to come short of any good work, any good gift. I yearn and cry out for the experiences of the Scripture. But all that you need is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Nothing else. It's all found in Christ. You've got it. You just might not know you have it. It's like William Randolph Hearst who was looking for that expensive, beautiful painting all over the world and he spent thousands of dollars sending his emissaries out to find it and they came to him months later and said, it's in your basement. You've had it all along. Many Christians, I think, are like that. Verse 12 further describes the enemies of the truth. Uh, One of them, a prophet of their own, that is a Cretan prophet, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the truth. I wonder if any of you have those verses underlined in your Bible. (laughs) Probably not. I don't. But have you ever noticed the Bible isn't very nice when it comes to false prophets? You notice that? Paul was very outspoken, wasn't he? Now, I wonder how false prophets would fare if you quoted verse 12 of them, if you went up to them and when they spewed out their incessant, putrefying false knowledge, if you'd said, you know what? Uh, you are liar, uh, evil beast, and a lazy glutton. <laughs> now, this is not a racist remark. Paul is not saying that everybody on the island of Crete is this way. He is quoting a man who lived 600 years before Christ named Epimenides, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, Cretan who ever lived. He was a writer, he was a poet, he was a prophet, he was a scholar. He was called one of the great minds of the Grecian world. And Epimenides, who was a Cretan, quoted this. And so what Paul is saying here by this is simply, I believe, what a non-Christian Cretan is saying about the Cretan lifestyle is being demonstrated by the false prophets who are in the church at Crete. He's using that as an example. He's saying, look, one of the non-believing Cretan prophets said this about the general lifestyle. That is being fulfilled by these false prophets who are inside the church. That's the general idea. Now, what should our reaction be? We'll probably save this for next time as we finish off uh, down to verse 16. Three things. Our reaction should be this. Their mouths must be stopped. We have to do it. He's telling that to to Titus. Titus, their mouths must be stopped or silenced. They must be rebuked. He said, rebuke them sharply. And thirdly, 
they must be rescued. And I like that. There's the positive. There's the upbeat. They must be silenced. How do you do that? By not giving them opportunities to speak. Don't invite them to the pulpit to speak. Don't invite them to have a conference in town. Don't put them on the radio. Don't have their books in your bookstore. Don't give them opportunity to spew the garbage. That's how you stop their mouth. Uh, Also, by teaching the truth. Not just by slamming others, but by teaching the truth. Taking people through the scriptures. Training people up in the truth so that when they know the truth, they'll know what falsehood is. It's like the old analogy we've used of the bank tellers. Years ago, they were given a $20 bill. They were said they were told, study this face and rear of the $20 bill. Look at it, study it, and know how it looks. They became so familiar with the authentic that by the time a counterfeit came their way, they said, fake, because they knew the real. And so you can stop their mouths by teaching people the truth, and so that when false doctrine comes, there'll be a little red flag that goes up and goes, this is false doctrine. Then it says uh, they must be rebuked. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Uh, we don't like that. I should uh, let me take that back. Some of us love that. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Uh, some of you are going, "Yes, there's my text, my proof text, my life verse." <laughs> because there are some people who love to go on one long polemic against everything that doesn't agree with them. But notice the purpose. Rebuke them sharply so that, that's the important part, so that they may be sound in the faith, that they may be rescued, in other words. They should be rebuked that they might be rescued. Gosh, imagine winning a false teacher over. Hey, next time that you think, oh, that false teacher wrote this book and said this, and you start slamming them, how about saying, let's pray for them. Let's pray that God would win them back to the truth. I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to do what I can, but let's pray for that person that they might be won back. That's God. That's God. God always tells us to love our enemies, doesn't he? Even if they're an enemy of the truth, we don't love what they say. We stand against the enemies of the truth because of what they say, what they practice. But we should love them. Jesus told us to love our enemies, and he's the greatest example. He goes around saving his enemies. And that ought to be our focus. I think I'll close with a little quip I heard about the Ayatollah Khomeini from Iran. You've heard of Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie is not a a way to prepare fish. It is a person (laughs) who lived over in uh, the Middle East. And he wrote a book that caused a controversy some years ago. The name of the book was Satanic Verses. I bought the book because I was interested in, in what he wrote. It's basically a bunch of fiction and stories, mystical stories, woven into elements of Islam. This was such an affront to some of the Islamic fundamentalists that the Ayatollah Khomeini said that he must be murdered. A death threat still is on his head to this day because he wrote that book. And Ayatollah Khomeini said, quote, Even if Salman Rushdie repents and becomes the most pious man of his time, it is incumbent upon every Muslim to employ everything that he's got to send him to hell. You couldn't have a more opposite stand than that of Jesus Christ, who would say, the doctrine is impure, but I love that person, 
And I want to see him rescued that he may be sound in the faith. That's the purpose of the rebuke, to be sound in the faith. So, Father, we come and we close tonight. And we are so grateful that you've given us general as well as special, specific revelation. Your word. That when we open it, when we proclaim it, we give you a chance to talk. We get your ideas, your views about people, things, subjects, on and on and on. And so, Father, we pray that we would love the truth because we love the author of the truth, not because we just worship a book, but because we love the one who wrote that book through prophets and apostles. Then, Lord, I pray that we would stand against those who attack the truth and say that we need more than Jesus, we need more than a simple trust and faith, we need more than repentance of our sins and faith in God. But they complicate it with some special knowledge or special techniques. Lord, I pray that we would get back to the truth that you have given, the simple but very powerful gospel of Jesus Christ that can change a man's eternal status forever. How grateful we are that your desire is not just to rebuke at whim, but to restore. In Jesus' name, amen.